Well, if you take your Bibles and turn to Acts 24, we continue our study of the book of Acts. And we're in the section in this sort of the last third of the, the book of Acts where over and over again, Paul is defending himself against typically two groups of people. One, he's defending himself against the Roman authorities who have the ultimate authority uh, in Israel to, to try to show these authorities, I am not a threat to the peace of the country. I am not uh, someone who's disturbing the peace of the people. And then the religious authorities are trying to suggest that, that what Paul is speaking is blasphemous. It's, he's speaking against the law. He's speaking against our temple. He's speaking against uh, uh, the Jewish people themselves. And so he defends himself over and over again. We've been seeing this the last couple of weeks, and this will continue throughout the end of the book. And one of the cons consistent features of, of, of these defenses that Paul makes uh, uh, with various authorities in these different legal settings is that we see how Paul shares the gospel under pressure. The reality is any one of these leaders could possibly sentence him to death. He's under enormous pressure. And yet it seems that Paul is able by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his knowledge of God's word, continue to share the gospel well, to, to share the gospel in a compelling manner under this incredible pressure. So this morning we'll see how Paul relates uh, to Felix and Felix's wife in, in making a defense uh, before the Roman authorities and before the Jewish authorities as well. Now, I know there's a few of you who, uh, you're involved in a sport called orienteering. Can, has any of you ever done this? Raise your hand. Okay, so Doug McGill, that's great. The whole Steen family is involved in this. Would you like to give a personal testimony of what that's like? Well, I mean... I participated in one of these things in college, and I was not very good at it, to be honest. You got a compass that you have, and you have a map. And, and the, the, the exercise that I went through is that on this map, there were several checkpoints that you had to go through. And now, it didn't matter in the competition I was in which checkpoints you went first, second, or third. The key was you got a map and a compass and somehow you would get to all of these checkpoints and of course you were hoping to get back and finish all of that before the other teams. I did not do too well. They did not have to send a rescue party, thankfully, but it was not pretty. I sort of want you to think of Paul's defense as, as sort of like orienteering. Paul is under this pressure. He's not sure exactly what his accusers are going to say at any given point in each of these legal proceedings he goes through. But he will have to use uh, the map, God's word, and the compass, the leading of the Holy Spirit to know exactly how to navigate these pressure-filled situations. And so what I want us to give us this morning is three checkpoints, three uh, important uh, stations, as it will, that we need to get a handle on ourselves as we 
uh, navigate this world, and as we come into contact with some of our friends and family members and co-workers and classmates, and, 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 the, and the subject of the gospel comes up, or the subject of religion comes up, and we need to know how to answer appropriately, compellingly, winsomely, the hope that we have in Jesus, because that's our task, but we're going to need a compass, the Holy Spirit, and a map, God's Word, to guide us through these different checkpoints as God directs our lives and to do that well. So before we get to the three checkpoints, I just want to give you a little bit of a context. Paul is now going to appear before the procurator, kind of like a governor, Felix. Felix had actually been a slave with his brother Pallas. But as a youngster, his brother Pallas had got connected with a, a man named Claudius who would become the emperor of Rome. So he had good connections. So he was freed, and because of his brother's connections with the emperor, he was able to, to rise in sort of the Roman hierarchy and become the governor of the region that uh, now Paul is going to come before. He governed for about six years. Uh, he was known to be, Felix was known to be very cruel. There were lots of uprisings and insurrections under his leadership of the Jewish people revolting against Roman rule. And he would often crush those revolts very violently, very cruelly, massive response. He took bribes. In fact, we'll see in this text that he wants Paul to give him a bribe. He also uh, uh, was accused of murdering his own people in sort of a mini-genocide. In fact, he was called back to Rome to answer for that. And because of his brother Paulus's connections with the emperor, then Nero, he was able to escape punishment. But what you're looking at in Felix is not a poster child for good governance. He also had an interesting personal life. He was married multiple times, and his present wife that we will read him in the story was lured away from, <laughs> in her marriage, uh, in, in, where, where Felix apparently used some kind of a sorceress to get his new wife away from a king, uh, a king of a little kingdom in Syria. And so um, both of them had a very colorful personal life. The high priest arrives, he's got some representatives, probably some members of the Sanhedrin, but he also brings a lawyer, uh, Tertullus, to make the case against Paul. It's interesting when you you read this, is that um, uh, when Tertullus, the the lawyer, uh, he starts off in verse uh, 2 with this, which was common apparently in, in a sort of a legal proceeding like this, to praise Felix, right, to butter him up. He said, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for the nation, this would have surprised most Jewish people. Peace? I don't think so. Your reforms? No. But there he goes, buttering up Felix. Proceeds to accuse Paul of being an instigator of civil unrest, to be a ringleader of this sect called the Nazarenes, to be profaning the temple, Other Jewish representatives take part in the accusation as well. And then as we just read, uh, Paul begins to make his defense. He reminds uh, Felix that I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days before these accusations came. Not a lot of time to plan a wholesale insurrection. 
Also, when I was arrested, you didn't see me disturbing the peace in the synagogues, in the temple, or anywhere. I was worshiping God. And then he says, actually, the, those that should accuse me are not even here. So where are my accusers? Where Paul begins to criticize the very process. And then we now get to the first checkpoint. And the first checkpoint, uh, I think is really important for us, is that our gospel message, the message that we are tasked to preach, is a continuation and fulfillment of the Old Testament. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. One of the accusations that, 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 that the Jewish people in particular make against Paul is that what he's teaching is antithetical to the law and prophets. And Paul is saying, no, what I'm teaching you is the fulfillment of everything that is in the law and prophets. Paul himself was raised as a Pharisee. He knew the law quite well. He knew the Old Testament scriptures quite well. Initially, he didn't understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the hope of Israel, the consolation of Israel. But he then sees that after his experience with the risen Christ, the ascended Christ on the way to Damascus. So he's making the case that what I am preaching is consistent with everything that is in the law and prophets. What he's saying is everything from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi, all of it is pointing directly to Jesus as that coming Messiah who comes to fulfill all the promises and expectations of the Old Testament. Now this is quite interesting, I think. Because if you talk to some of our global partners who are serving the Lord all over the world, taking the gospel to the uttermost part of the world, they will tell you in some of their contexts that the people that God has directed uh, these global partners to serve are people who have no idea about the Old or the New Testaments. And what's interesting is these global partners will tell you if I want to tell someone about Jesus... I don't start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I go all the way back to Genesis 1 and start there. And give a sort of a narrative of the Old Testament so that when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can understand why Jesus actually came. And I think that has a lot to say to us this day, today because in my experience, this isn't true for every person, But there are many people, the people I end up talking to mostly about Jesus, have no idea about Jesus, really, but they have no idea what Genesis 1 through Malachi has to say. And so in a weird way, while Paul was in a culture, particularly the Jewish culture of his day, many people who have understood the Old Testament, they couldn't see that it was talking about Jesus, but we live in a culture where nobody has any idea about the Old Testament, and yet we're tasked to bring the message of Jesus when we have a culture that is very distant from the Old Testament. And so I would say in the last couple of years... I've had the privilege of of having these one-on-one Bible studies and sometimes small groups with people who are seeking, and we start to talk about Jesus. 
by going to Genesis 1. And we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament giving the sweeping narrative. It takes us a long time to get to Jesus. It's one study I've done. It's 26 weeks. You have to almost ask someone to commit the next half year of their lives to study. But you have to do that so they understand Jesus. So just briefly, I want to kind of share you why this is so important, right? If you go back to Genesis, you, you see that in Genesis 1, God creates the world. He created it personally. He made the world and he made us, human beings, to be image bearers. We were supposed to manage the world under God's authority. And if we had done that, the world would have flourished. And in Genesis 3, we see that these two human beings, Adam and Eve, decided we're not going to rule the world under your authority. We're going to set up our own kingdom. And the result of that has been a mess. Has it not? You don't need a Bible to tell you that, although the Bible will tell you that. Read the New York Times. Go and get on the, the, the website, you know, subscribe to the Times, read the first 10 articles every day, and you will get a clear picture. The world is not going very well. And why is that? Well, the Bible would say it's because we have failed as human beings made in his image to manage the world under his authority, and we've decided to reject his rule, and we've set up our own rule. That's when you get to Genesis 12, 11, where you see the Tower of Babel, where people are trying to build their own way to heaven on their own, setting up a human kingdom opposed to God's kingdom. And the net result has been a disaster. And of course, in the Bible, from Genesis 12 on, you see God's plan of how he's going to repair this broken world because we haven't ruled under his authority. In Genesis 12, God begins to work in one family, the family of Abraham. He says, through this one family, I will bless the whole world. I will restore the world under the author my authority. I will, re uh, uh, I, will, I will sort of work to repair the damage you humans have done, and I will try to help the world to get back under my own rule, which leads to flourishing. And eventually, the family of Abraham becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. This was supposed to be a place. They had God's law. They had uh, the moral law of God. They had the Mosaic law. And Israel was supposed to show the world what it would look like if people truly lived under the rule and reign of God. The entire sacrificial system in Israel was designed to show that we couldn't on our own get back to God. We needed a substitute. All of this points to Jesus. And of course, Israel becomes its own uh, sort of uh, metaphor and picture uh, of, of what happens when even God's people reject God as its ruler. See, the point in time in 1 and 2 Samuel where the people say, we don't want you, God, as king. We want a king like all the other nations. Why? They want to reject the rule and reign of God and try to rule and reign themselves. And the rest of the Old Testament is prophesying that God, who made this world, who wanted us to rule this world under his authority, which would lead to flourishing, not simply for the humans that live there, but for the whole planet, how he can restore it back under his rule. He has to send his own son to die in our place, to take our punishment, to rise from the dead, showing he has the power over sin and death. And it is that one, Jesus, the Messiah, who will, as he brings us to himself, begin to repair the damage 
that we have brought on ourselves by rejecting the kingdom of God and building our own kingdom. And that one day that Jesus will return and set up his kingdom fully so that the rule and reign of God can be experienced forever. Amen? Now my fear, I've got two fears for us. One is... (laughs) I fear that for even many believers in Jesus Christ, we are not that familiar with the Old Testament. And therefore, we don't understand the beauty and glory fully of what Jesus has done for us. My second fear for us is in tr- because we have been tasked to share the message of God's redemptive plan through Jesus to other people that we are gonna, we're going we're gonna to go to Jesus so quick and, and we, we miss the background from Genesis to Malachi that someone might need to fully understand what Jesus has done. So I'm going to make you an offer. If you email me, or you email info at stonehillprinceton.org. Before the end of the decade, I will reply to you. No, I will send you a Bible study that you could use yourself. It, it highlights the major narrative arc of the Old Testament, which will help you understand the glory of Jesus, I think, more deeply. But it'll also be a Bible study that you could use with a friend of yours or a coworker or a classmate who expresses some interest in finding about this Jesus that, that, that goes from Genesis 1 and provides the important backdrop and then eventually gets to Jesus and puts Jesus in the context of the Old Testament because this is exactly what Paul is saying. I am not teaching a new teaching. I am not teaching some new cult or some new sect. I am actually teaching about Jesus who is the fulfillment of every single thing that was prophesied, every single sacrifice in that tabernacle, all of the temple worship, all of it was pointing to Jesus. I am not dismissing the law and prophets. I am preaching the fulfillment of those law and prophets in the person of Jesus. That's the first checkpoint. There's a second checkpoint. We see this in verse 15 and 21. We we looked at this last week because Paul continues to say that. But look at verse 15. In other words, he defends himself by saying, I I believe everything laid down by the law written in the prophets, end of 14. Verse 15, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, other than this one thing I cried. In other words, this is why I'm on trial, Paul is saying. He says this over and over again. I'm on trial. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The second checkpoint here is the crucial event in the story of redemption is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The crucial event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the message. This is what we need to get to. This is what we need to verbalize. This is what we need to live out of. If we continue the works of Jesus, be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only here, but around the world. I talked about this last week, that we need to make the resurrection the main issue. If there's going to be a divisive issue, you don't want to be divisive because you're obnoxious. You want to be divisive because you're speaking about Jesus, his death and resurrection. 
And just briefly, I will say to all of us who, who named the name of Jesus, we've got to tell our friends, our family, those around us, in a normal human being way, okay? Okay, if I see one of you out with a big sign, you walking around, Jesus rose from death. I mean, that's not bad, but I'm not going to come up to you and say, good job, I'll pray for you a little bit, but... We need to be articulating that this is our hope. And you've got lots of opportunities. Some of you have done just beautiful jobs. You have had a very bad medical diagnosis. Your physical life is under serious threat. And I know a number of you have told your family, your friends, your coworkers, the medical technicians that work on you, the doctors, the nurses, you've told them, I'm scared about this diagnosis, but my hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. That's right. The other thing I think we could do is that it's very easy, at least with the conversations I have, where people lament the state of the world. I don't have any friend in the last five years who's told me the world is great. Nobody. And when those conversations come up, when there's a lot of hand-wringing and what's going to happen in the world and there's a lot to be concerned about, Sometimes, some, when God leads you and it's appropriate, you need to let people know in your life, my hope is not in this world, it's in the resurrection of Jesus. You don't need to preach a, a 20 minute sermon, just say that. Because that's our hope. So that's the second checkpoint. The third checkpoint is that judgment and sin are part of the biblical story of redemption. Judgment and sin are part of the biblical story of redemption. Paul finishes his defense before the, 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 the assembled gathering there in this legal proceeding. And in verse 24, we see something interesting. He says, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla... Who was, a Jew, who was Jewish. She was, she was a Jewish woman. She had been originally married to a king in what is now known as Syria, a small kingdom. Felix was able to lure her to him, and so she got rid of her first husband. He's been married several times. He sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So apparently, Paul was called back to do some sort of personal uh, meetings with Felix and his wife. In verse 25, he says, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. We also read in verse 26 that he was hoping to bribe Paul as well. And apparently these meetings may have gone on for two years. We read in verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So there may have been a number of meetings. Now, again, this is not a transcript of the legal proceeding. This is a summary. But it's interesting that Paul, when he speaks to Felix and Drusilla, he speaks to them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, we're not exactly told all of what Paul meant, but I think we know from other parts of Scripture what those concepts are about. And what's interesting about this is that what Paul speaks to Felix and Drusilla about is very similar to what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was all about. You go to John 16, Jesus says the Spirit will convict people of what? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
Righteousness and judgment are the same words in the text that shows that this is what Paul was speaking to Felix about. The word self-control, I mean, you know, you could say that could be a sort of a synonym for sin, talking about our lack of self-control. And of course, Paul had a lot to talk to about to Felix and Drusilla. Their marital life was a disaster. Felix was a disaster leader. I mean, he had lots of things to talk about, to talk about your self-control, your sin, right? And the fact that judgment is coming, Felix and Drusilla, and the fact that there's righteousness available in Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, it's almost as if Paul is attempting to give the Holy Spirit something to work with so that the Holy Spirit can bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to Felix and Drusilla. Now, I think for a lot of us, this is exactly the part of the redemptive story that we don't want to share with our friends, our neighbors, our family. I get that. I think one of the reasons we struggle with that is because we've seen bad examples of that, right? I remember being on vacation with my wife. This was right when Brexit was happening. We were actually in London, right across from uh, Westminster Abbey. In this park, there was all kinds of signs, you know, Brexit, you know, and there was one guy in the middle of the crowd. He had a microphone, he had a big speaker, he was very loud, and he kept just walking through the crowd and he kept saying, the kingdoms of this world will never prevail. God is bringing judgment. Brexit will not save us. Repent, turn to Jesus. You know, and it's kind of one of these situations where, you know, he's doing that and I'm like, I didn't join him. (laughs) One of the crowd yelled to him, hey, what did Jesus teach about Brexit? Got a laugh. You look at that kind of a thing and you say, I I don't want to do that. Well, I don't think that's what Paul did. Oh yeah, Paul talked about the judgment. He talked about Felix and Drusilla's lack of self-control. He talked about the righteous they would need to stand before God. It was a powerful enough presentation that Felix said, I'm scared, it didn't go away from me. But we know from other parts of Paul's teaching that when he speaks of judgment, when Paul speaks of God's judgment against sin, Paul is very humble. Remember what he says in 1 Timothy? I was a blasphemer. He lists all of his sins. I was persecuting Christians. I was a disaster. In fact, Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, but God showed me mercy. When you talk about the judgment to come, right, and which is part of the biblical narrative, part of the redemptive story, you're not sitting over people and saying, you're going to be judged. Oh, well, God's going to get you. The reality is we all stand under the judgment of God. And the only difference between someone who knows Christ and someone who doesn't is the person who knows Christ has received mercy, undeserved grace. So we... We have to share about judgment. We have to share about sin, self-control, righteousness. But we can do that in a winsome way that doesn't put us over people, but shows the solidarity we have with people. I often say this, and I've heard, you know I've said this before. Often when I'm talking to someone and they say, how are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. Most people just say, okay, yeah, great, whatever. But some people say, why are you saying that? And I will say, if I got what I deserved before a holy and righteous God, I would be in deep trouble here. The fact that I'm walking around 
is a sign of God's mercy. And then, of course, they all, I have an advantage over you. They say, you're a pastor. Why would you say that about yourself? And then, the gospel. But it starts with judgment. But I don't judge people like this. I'm in solidarity with them. So don't think about judgment. You can share it winsomely. You, you, can, say, you can share about sin and self-control winsomely. I mean, one of the things that I often do is, I, is people understand that the world is broken, right? And then I try to get to show them that the world is broken because each individual one of us is broken. And sometimes I will say to people, listen, when I look at the world and the brokenness, when I look in the mirror, I see that I'm part of the problem. And except for the grace of God, I would never receive mercy and grace because I am part of the reason this world is so broken. It's also a loving thing to do if you do it winsomely. You want to be warned, right? I mean, if, if you really believe in this stuff, that, that God is a, 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 a holy God who, 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 who created the world, right? So it's his world. He, he, had, he made us image bearers, right? So every person in the world has inherent dignity because they're made by God. He gave us this responsibility to, to manage the world under the authority of God. And we go and mess it all up. Doesn't that God have a right to deal justly with the ways in which we've hurt the world? I think so. And not to explain that in a winsome way, in some sense, is very unloving. I read the, the book Jaws at too early of an age, and it scarred me for life. I, I am unscientific about my fear of sharks, okay? It's unscientific. I've read the data. Shark attacks are very rare. They're very rare in New Jersey. They were very rare in Miami, Florida. I know that's true, but when I get into the ocean, I, I feel that there are hundreds of sharks coming to me. I was in Myrtle Beach. My family used to go down to Myrtle Beach a lot with my parents. And my worst fears were realized. I, a dorsal fin pops up. My family was about 75 yards from most of the other 50 swimmers. And this, this fish, or whatever it was, in my mind it was a shark, dorsal fin pops up. It kind of looked small, but the longer I looked at it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. I got my family out of there in somewhat of a panicked way. Now the thing starts to swim toward the 50 people. And now I, honestly, I don't feel proud about this. I'm trying to decide, do I love these people enough to warn them or I'm too scared that this is a, a six inch fish that I just have dreamed up. I don't know what to do. Should I let them be eaten by the, 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 the beast and, 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 and let's, or be embarrassed? Anyway, finally I, I said, I've got to warn them. But I want to do it somewhat calmly. I want to go, there's a shark, get out of here, everybody. You know, that's what I want to do. So I kind of try to jog, I try to move faster than the shark. And I come up to the water, there's 50 people. And I, this is my opening line. I'm not a marine biologist. But there's a dorsal finned animal swimming. And before I got to swimming, and the people poured out of that. And thankfully, the thing turned and went out into the open ocean so nobody could see how big or small that thing was. If we really believe that there's a holy God 
who made this world and will bring justice to the ways in which we have set up a false kingdom. I mean, we've rejected God's kingdom. We've gone our own way. We've made a mess of the thing. And God has provided grace for us not to declare that message winsomely, graciously, appropriately. That's unloving, really. I have these difficult conversations. I mean, people don't like the judgment of God and they've, uh, they've pushed back at me, you know, and... And a lot of times I'll end up the conversation this way. Okay, let's just assume you're right. There is no God. It doesn't matter really how you live too much because we're all going to die. and you, you turn to dust. There's no resurrection. There's no new life to come. I mean, this is the view of my friend, you know. And, and within a few short years, no one will know and remember what, who I was. And eventually the sun's going to flame out and no one's going to live on this planet. And there's no really rhyme or reason or purpose. There's no God's kingdom with purposes. Well, then, you know, I, I guess, you know, it, it, maybe it was silly that I believed in Jesus, but in some sense, who cares? On the other hand, I'll tell my friend this. What if the Bible's telling us the truth? That there was a God who made the world, and he wanted us to manage it under his authority, and we fouled the whole thing up, and he, God spent, you know, thousands of years trying to woo us back and provided Jesus to die in our place, and he promises to come again and redeem this broken world in a beautiful expression. What if that's tr- the truth, and you, you reject it? You've got everything to lose. And I don't be harsh on people. I just say, think about it. Ask God to show you. If it's true. That's the third. The third checkpoint. Which leads us to communion. Now the first checkpoint is that everything in the law and prophets are pointing to Jesus. The second checkpoint is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the message we are tasked to share. The third checkpoint is we, we, judgment and sin are, are part of the message of this plan of redemption that God has us on. We need to be sharing all of that winsomely, humbly, graciously. But it reminds us of what we're going to do here at this table. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we are reminding ourselves that only in Jesus do we have any hope. We are reminding ourselves that we, along with every single human being in the world, we've all fallen short of God's standard. We've all set up our own kingdoms, and we are right with God, not because we are good, but because Jesus died in our place. And not only that, we were reminding ourselves when Jesus initiated the first Lord's table, the first communion, he reminded his disciples, he said, I will not drink of the cup of this wine until we drink it anew in my kingdom. He's reminded us when we take the bread and we, we drink the cup, it's not just that he saved me individually, although that's true. He's telling us that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's repair plan for this broken universe is going to be fulfilled in that new kingdom. And if you've received Jesus by faith, 
If you simply believe and trust in him alone, by grace, you will be part of that new kingdom. So I'd like to ask the servers to come forward. And you, the servers, you can have a seat here uh, just in this pew. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's table. And so I want you to listen to Psalm 51, which is a psalm of confession, and bow your heads and, 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 and confess your sin. I will lead us in a prayer of confession later, and then a promise of pardon. You will participate in that responsive reading as we prepare to celebrate this amazing expression of God's grace.